So Brandilyn Peters Samuelson is an assistant professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Her pioneering work into our microbes is uncovering not just the connection between the food that we eat and our gut health, but how our microbiome impacts our risk of disease. We're not just talking about bloating and IBS, but how our microbes connect to broader issues like cancer, kidney disease, even cardiovascular disease. Brandilyn, it's great to have you on the podcast. We're, you know, hearing more and more now or seeing more in the press about, you know, people making radical changes to their diet and health issues, inflammatory conditions, even skin conditions they've had for years, miraculously sort of clearing up. But it sort of feels like it's anecdotal. We don't fully understand why these things are sort of happening. Is it fair to say that that we're quite sort of early in this journey journey of understanding the connection between our microbes and our sort of health? Yeah. uh, First of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, Yeah, I think we we know that diet is a really strong um, predictor of what's in your gut microbiome and diet is a strong influencer of what's in your, uh, what uh, the composition of your microbes. Um, And yeah, we're still kind of early in linking that to how that affects our health um so I'm, I'm in i'm interested to know because obviously the the sort of the 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 media side of gut health the sort of explosion of the awareness of it has happened quite quickly but i'm assuming your sort of journey in academia started quite a while like how do you get into studying i think that's interesting in itself yeah. like how did you find yourself in this position yeah yeah. Um, so I, I kind of um, stumbled upon it out of, out of my own interest. So I got my PhD originally in environmental health science, which, um, and I didn't study the microbiome. And at that time, there was this kind of explosion of, you know, studies coming out uh, about the microbiome. And it was this really hot topic. And I was thinking like, oh, I should get involved in this. This is really interesting. So um, so when I was applying for a postdoctoral position, I, I applied to a position that you know, had this kind of data and I, and, um, I learned and I taught myself a lot of stuff and, uh, and it was exciting. And I just decided to stay with it because, you know, it's, it's a great area to be in and it's really exciting. I'm interested to know, obviously, before we kind of get into, into some of the deeper topics that we're going to talk about today, Going on that journey for you, do you see a difference now before you were, you know, pre-doctorate while you were studying to where you are kind of now in your own lifestyle habits, how you eat, how you, you know, what impact <laughs> that have? Yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely know more now, but, you know, it's it's still hard even for a practitioner like myself to change my diet, (laughs) um, you know, with, with stress of life and kids and, you know, just everything. So I think I, I try to eat more fruits and vegetables, but I'm definitely not perfect. And I haven't made, I don't think any drastic, um, life changes. (laughs) I find that so interesting. And I do see a correlation between, you know, I'm very fortunate. I get to speak to everybody from functional practitioners to academics, to scientists, all these kind of people. And I do see a difference between people that are, nutritionists or functional practitioners and more kind of academics and far as as far as how much change they have made to the, I don't know what that I don't know why that is but there does seem to be some kind of uh, correlation there that's um, so funny we should do a study about that 
<laughs> we should do a study about that. Um, you know, we, we are more and more aware now when we talk about kind of gut health. I think even household knowledge now is that idea of like, we have a microbiome. The food that we eat in some way impacts our kind of long-term health. I think for a lot of people, when they think about the microbiome, they sort of think about if things aren't right in the microbiome, those symptoms would traditionally present as gastric issues, things like bloating, IBS, you know, stomach pain, things like that. But I think it's kind of fair to say now that the impact of your sort of microbiome and the food you eat, we're starting to realize has, is it fair to say, wider spread implications on our health? Yeah, I think they're they're involved in so many aspects of our health, um, not just gut. Um, so, so many, there's so many studies that have come out and continue to come out about associations of the microbiome with disease. Um, it's hard to know if that's always like the microbiome is causing disease or if the disease is influencing the microbiome, but there's, there's a lot of growing evidence that the microbiome is involved in, in almost every aspect of your health. <laughs> One of the studies that you were working at, I think when it, when we think about like things that are not necessarily connected. I thought one of the most interesting things that I was reading before we, we spoke about was was a study that you were involved in to do with lung health. And that to me mm. was like, out, even doing this podcast was outside of the sort of realm of what I thought where a microbiome would exist. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I know that the gut microbiome gets the most attention because it's the highest biomass, which means there's the most bugs there, but there's actually uh, microbiomes in lots of different parts of your body, one of which is the lungs. And that those bacteria kind of come from the air that you breathe that gets into the lungs among some other ways. But um, so we did a study where we were, where we um, measured um, the lung microbiome in uh, patients who had lung cancer. So they had surgery. So there was a part of their um, lung, the tumor that was removed. And so we measured the microbiome in the tumor and looked to see if that was associated with them having a recurrence of their lung cancer later on. Um, so, and yeah. So, so what you're saying is, is that you were trying to see that if there was a correlation between the people that, that not, not actually had the cancer in the first place, but the likelihood of that cancer returning, is that right? Yeah. So they all had cancer um, and their cancer was removed. And, you know, once you have cancer, you're at, you're at risk of, of it coming back. So, yeah. So we were looking at whether the microbiome was associated with that cancer coming back. And, and what were the results from that? Yeah, we did find some some associations of the certain bacteria in the lungs that were associated with um, with the cancer coming back, and we we looked at a few different data sets to kind of try to replicate our results. But I will say that the the sample sizes were were small, so um, I think we we need a much larger study um, to to look at this again. But it was uh, preliminary and and very interesting. But with so many of these studies going on where you're starting to see correlations, you know, we've even seen studies now about the effectiveness of chemotherapy based on the, the microbiome makeup of the kind of patients. Let's take the example there of the, of the lung cancer. If a much larger trial is ran, which is how these trials get commissioned, right? You do a small one, you show some kind of pattern going on, and then a much larger trial can kind of follow. Yeah. If a larger trial took place took place here and there was strong evidence to suggest a correlation between certain bacteria 
what would a treatment look like in that? Yeah. So there's, there's two ways you can kind of look at this. One is um, sort of figuring out who's at risk. So not necessarily doing a treatment, but trying to figure out using that information to figure out who's at risk of, of, you know, getting the disease again so that you can monitor them more closely in terms of treating the lung microbiome. I don't think we know a lot about how to, how to change the lung microbiome. Um, so, so that's, that would be an area that would need a lot of, a lot of research. I certainly but, don't know. <laughs> so the idea would be that if people had this bacteria that potentially put them at a higher risk, it means that you would be able to cat, monitor people, catch the cancer earlier, which would potentially reduce the number of fatalities. Mortality. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that especially for those kinds of cancers where it's hard to catch them early, um, there's a lot of interest in in finding biomarkers that help you to detect the cancer earlier. When, 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 like, how do these trials sort of, do you all sort of sit around a table and say, I've got a theory that lung cancer could be connected? Like how, how, who decides what you're gonna, like how, where does that come from? Um, yeah, it's usually collaboration among, among scientists. Um, I think just from, from reading articles, I, I didn't discover the lung microbiome myself, but, but, you know, from reading articles about the lung microbiome and, and also having, having, um, some samples that you can, you can use. So it's a combination of like figuring out how to, how to do this study and, and having the idea, um, and then getting the funding, <laughs> which is, yeah, you can't, can't do it without funding. Of all the studies or trials that you've worked on to you what has been the most sort of profound do you think um i think um some of the work that i did about um the immunotherapy where um you mentioned this briefly before so how the gut microbiome um modulates the effect of immunotherapy in um, cancer patients. In that study, it was melanoma patients. I think that's a really interesting area um, where the gut microbiome is potentially involved in improving the efficacy of, of a treatment. Um, so I'm really interested in, in how the gut microbiome can be modified to improve the efficacy of existing treatments that we have for diseases. So delving into that trial then a little bit, the idea of yeah. it was, was to try and understand if it was it, if the likelihood of the efficacy of the uh, immunotherapy treatment for the cancer to work or treating, giving probiotics and then seeing if the therapy was more Right. Effective. So it wasn't, it wasn't giving probiotics. It was just looking at, you know, what is each person's microbiome, and then they had the immunotherapy treatment, and then seeing whether their microbiome, you know, before they even receive the treatment, like, does that microbiome help you to have a better survival um, based on being on the treatment? And what did you see? What were the results that came out of that? Yeah, so there are certain um, gut bacteria that are associated with better outcomes on immunotherapy, in this case, in um, melanoma patients. So, so, and this actually, this wasn't the first study that, that looked at that. So it kind of confirmed some previous studies and also studies in mice that strongly showed that um, the gut microbiome was associated with immunotherapy outcomes. So um, I think the evidence is, is getting 
a little bit stronger for for that story about about cancer immunotherapy. Those bacteria that you saw with the I don't know if you can remember what the bacteria were. <laughs> I don't remember. Were, uh, but but would they be associated with diet? So the I'm assuming the the bacteria that were associated with a healthier outcome were in inverted commas good bacteria, you know. It, yeah. I think you know, so. It, I think yeah. So I think um one of the the good um bacteria maybe was fecalibacterium which is um, you know, associated with having a good diet, a f- high fiber diet. So there, there is definitely, uh, I, we didn't study a connection with diet in that study, but I think that diet can definitely probably help with, with that. Uh, and I suppose some ways, like whether it's chicken or egg, whether the likelihood of the outcome of the treatment was connected to a healthier diet or whether it was connected to a healthier diet creating a better environment for those bacteria, those microbes to thrive. It is an interesting thing, isn't it, that that can be have such a significant impact on the outcome of immunotherapy. What, yeah. w- would that be different for people that are going through chemotherapy? Have there been any trials correlated to the microbiome? Um, I I don't I don't know about chemotherapy. I know that with immunotherapy because it's it's linked to the. Um, to kind of getting your immune system to do some work against the cancer and yeah. the bac- and the microbiome is like a big um, influence on your immune system. So that's why the mi- we that's why we think that the microbiome kind of can help with immunotherapy. I'm not I'm not sure about chemo though. I'm yeah. interested to know as well. Like one of the studies that you were talking about in a slightly different area was to do with menopause, mm-hmm. um, where that seems like quite an abstract connection as well where did that sort of begin and why was that pursued why was that so interesting yeah so that's actually uh, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the in the menopause research now so I can talk at length about this one <laughs> um, so 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 during menopause right like a woman uh, has her hormones changing specifically estrogen and progesterone are decreasing during that time and there's been some evidence that the bacteria in your gut or certain bacteria in your gut can interact with these hormones and um, metabolize them. So, so that, you know, gets us thinking about, well, if the microbiome is interacting with hormones and during menopause, the hormones are drastically changing, how does that affect the microbiome? So that's kind of how we started looking at, you know, what is the association of menopause with the gut microbiome? And so what were the, when, when you were looking at the trial and going through this, what were the sort of surprising things that kind of came out of that trial or, or takeaway things that you thought were interesting? Yeah, so, so far we've only done observational um, studies of this, so we haven't done a, a trial per se, but um, some of, some, we've had some really interesting findings with menopause. So the largest study we did was a study where we had um, both um, women who had not been through menopause and women who were after menopause, and we also included men to kind of compare them. And we found that um, women who had already been through menopause, when comparing them to the premenopausal women, they had um, lower diversity in their gut microbiome, and they had... Um, they had lower um, levels of these enzymes that are known to interact with the hormones, which is kind of what we hypothesized. But a really interesting finding was that 
the the microbiome of the postmenopausal women was actually more similar to the microbiome of men than the premenopausal microbiome was to men. I know that's like a a word jumble, but <laughs> basically like because so men don't don't have high levels of estrogen and postmenopausal women also don't have high levels of estrogen. So so after menopause the the microbiome of women becomes slightly more similar to men and we think it's we think it's because of the depletion of estrogen. So long term when we think about and I get, I know these are like abstract thoughts at the moment <laughs> and there are kind of trials to come but do you think that you know well, I suppose that's a, you know, do you, do you think right now, like if somebody has in inverted commas, poor gut health, there is a likelihood that there could be an increase in symptoms associated with menopause versus people that have like optimal gut health, or is it too early to say that? Um, it's too early to say that, but it's, it's something very interesting to think about. And it's a good idea for, for a study and we hope to, to look at it. Yeah. What what studies have you, what are on the horizon at the moment? What's particularly interesting you at the moment? Yeah. So right now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to set up a study where we're going to um, look at um, the gut microbiome longitud longitudinally over the menopausal transition. So what that means is that within one person tracking their microbiome over time as they're going through menopause rather than what we've been doing now, which is just kind of comparing a group of women who are postmenopausal and a group of women who are premenopausal. So we're, we're, we're going to try and kind of confirm some of our finding in a more, uh, in a better study design um, to see what, what's actually happening to the gut, happening to the gut microbiome during menopause within a person. So many, so many of the ways that we sort of treat health conditions at the moment, whether we're talking about, I mean, actually, in some ways, immunotherapy and, and, and fecal microbiome transfer plants that you've mentioned are, are, are an exception to this. They are quite novel in the way, but a lot of the ways that we kind of go about things is pharmaceutical medicine, symptom reduction, you know, uh, those sorts of treatments. With the rise of immunotherapy and things like fecal microbiome transplants, do you see that these therapeutic interventions which I guess are I guess you could argue are slightly more natural in a way in like le harnessing the body to do a lot of the work do you think that they're going to become more prevalent in the way that we treat health conditions in the future do you think there could be quite a shift in the way that we address certain health conditions yeah um I don't I don't know if there will be uh a full-on shift, like I think a lot of the medicines that we have that that work will continue to be to be used. But I think that the like therapies that target the microbiome could be a really great way to to improve, you know, the existing therapies and kind of supplement their effectiveness. Um, if we can if we can really understand, you know, what the microbiome is is doing and how the microbiome is interacting with certain treatments, I think you know, that can help to, to improve their, their efficacy. So I do think that that could happen. We're just not that, not there yet. And so the, and so the idea of that would be something along the, so, so the challenge at the moment is, is like, we kind of started this podcast. It's like, even though we can see certain outcomes, a lot of them are anecdotal right now. And because there are so many millions of bacteria actually understanding, let's take the example of menopause, right? Okay. Here's a, here's a microbiome before, here's a microbiome after, but it's actually then understanding 
what microbes are interacting, when are they changing, which ones are important, which ones aren't. But the idea is, is that eventually, if we understand it at such a depth, that it could be something like, here's a, like, I don't think FMT necessarily is going to become widespread. It's quite a significant thing. But this idea of maybe, here's a targeted probiotic for people who are going through menopause. Is that like, that's yeah. what the North Star would be? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be... That would be really cool if we can get to that place where we really know like, okay, these, these specific bacteria promote, um, promote estrogen and, you know, they're helpful during menopause. If we could, if we could know that. And the way that we kind of sequence and understand the microbiome, is that getting smarter? Is it getting easier to kind of understand these trillions of microbes? Like, where are we at with that? Yeah. So we have a lot of um, really great softwares that I I am not the one who developed them, but um, <laughs> a lot of great software that um, can, can kind of take this huge like DNA sequencing data that comes out of, you know, measuring someone's microbiome and kind of provide you with the output of, you know, what species are there, what functions are there. Um, and then if you, if you sequence deep enough, which means just like basically reading more and more and more DNA from a sample, um, you can even figure out what specific strains are there, um, you know, and, and so we, we can get a lot of information right now about the microbiome. Um, also, we're some some studies also not only look at the DNA that's in a sample, but also the RNA. So like not only what what's there, but like what genes are they expressing? What are they doing? So that's not as common, but I think it's going to become more and more um, common to include that kind of information also. And, and so do you think that is the computing power like is that also something that will need to improve? Like is there an is you know is it enough at the moment to be able to understand and process all of that data or is that something that's got to evolve as well um i think that the computing uh power is is definitely there um i think that certain softwares work faster than others it really depends on the method that they're using um so i think that developers are 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 always looking to improve you know the amount of time that it takes for the software to run but i think that um it's def- I, I think that we do have the computing power to to do the, the work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I suppose actually a lot of it comes down to the sample sizes that you can actually get hold of in trials to get enough useful data. Yeah. To... So the, yeah, I mean the more the more participants you have in a study and the more and the deeper the sequencing, I mean the longer it's going to take to to process that data. Um so I yeah, I've definitely had times where I'm processing data and it's taking weeks and weeks and I'm like when is this going to be ready <laughs> to analyze? Um but but I mean, I mean, there's there's ways to to do it faster, you know, running things in parallel, and and so I I, I haven't worked on like a humongous 
uh, study with you know tens of thousands, but I think there are are um, researchers who have who have looked at such a large scale, um, which is really which is really like what we need. We need these really large sample sizes to be very confident in the results. And how do you get ten thousand people to take part in like? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's. It's mostly because I'm assuming a lot of these people are having to give stool samples, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one one way is just to um, it's not in any one study, but it's pooling, you know, multiple studies together. So there's all of these consortia now where um, you know different groups of scientists from different institutions. I'm like, we have data and you have data. Let's put it together to get a larger sample size, um, or to even just validate some findings. And, but there are, I mean, in terms of cohort studies, there are, um, you know, really large studies out there, but it is, it is challenging, you know, because everybody has to provide a stool sample for, for a microbiome study. So, um, you know, you see study, you see some studies that are like on the range of a thousand, a couple thousand. Um, but I think if, if you put all those, all those studies together to do an analysis, you would have a really large sample size. (laughs) It's hard do to coordinate think, everyone. <laughs> do you think that there's a, a, a an kind of general trend in diversity, general pop, the, how do I say this? The general population, generally the microbiome becoming less and less diverse over time. Is that something that we're seeing? Yeah, I think that's, there's, there's this term westernization of the gut microbiome so that, you know, this idea that, you know, people who live in very industrialized uh, societies like in the U.S. or in the U.K., that our microbiomes are less diverse than sort of more indigenous populations that are, are living in, in, other, in other countries um, or even just like societies that have a more agricultural um you know, lifestyle uh, as opposed to our more industrialized lifestyle. So there, there has been um, a decrease in diversity in terms of that shift from this agricultural or lifestyle to um, this more westernized kind of um, lifestyle. And it probably has a lot to do with, with diet, um, you, know, you know, like we always come back to diet. <laughs> and... If that is the case, then, if we're seeing a depletion in microbes and an increase in disease, more inflammatory conditions, Mm -hmm. is the idea in the long term that the golden egg isn't necessarily treating people once they're sick, but finding something that we could give to people to help to, to increase the diversity of their microbiome broadly kind of earlier in life, because you're inheriting your microbiome from your parents, right? And if your parents have, as you say, had a westernized sort of diet, from day one, it's not like you're starting with an amazing microbiome that you can go and build on. I'm assuming it gradually depletes through the generations, right? It doesn't just reset at birth. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that you that you do, you know, share a similar microbiome with 
with your parents, let's say, because of sharing the same foods. But in terms of when a baby, when a baby is born, I mean, they always start with like extremely low diversity in their gut. Um, because all of their, all that they're eating is breast milk. So they have like a one food diet. So it's very, they're they're And then, you know, as they, when they start eating solid foods, their diversity goes up, but it's, what are those foods? So I, I haven't, I haven't studied this specifically, but I think that, that, you know, we know that once the baby starts eating solid foods, their, their, um, their diversity goes up for sure. I mean, even in a Westernized you know, society, but it's probably not the same increase in diversity as, you know, some other, um, non-Westernized, um, lifestyles. But as a kind of simplistic thought would be then, if you could somehow take the microbiome of somebody in, you know, some indigenous tribe somewhere where it's like they've never had yeah. antibiotics. It's like super diverse. They eat loads of yeah. vegetables, all of that sort of stuff. And you could somehow turn that into a FMT pill or something that if everyone could have access to that, it may well significantly reduce the amount of people that are having kind of chronic health conditions and disease and things like that. I know that's a little bit kind of a utopian thought, but but there is something in that, right? Like if we could find a way to help every, like it's not realistic to think that we're going to just, let's take America as an example. I know that you're in New York at the moment. Like the idea that we're going to get 300 million people to start eating kefir every day is ludicrous, right? Of course, yes. But if you could make an affordable probiotic or whatever they're going to call these FMT pills or whatever, like accessible or even affordable or, or free, if you like. Yeah. I, wa- I imagine there's probably quite an appetite there f- when people think about how to l- look after like healthcare costs and things like that. That's why a lot of funding right. is going into these trials. Yeah, I think, I think that could have a lot of potential. I think the issue is kind of... Um, one, if, if you, if, if the, if the, getting these probiotics to kind of work in the way that you want them to, um, you know, it, if you're, if your your microbiome, you know, accepts those, uh, that diversity or kind of rejects it based on your diet. I mean, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know if, if, if such a magic pill could, could exist, but it's a nice thought. <laughs> but, but the idea is, is what you're saying is even if this magic pill existed, it would still then be sabotaged by the diet that people are eating. It's not just as simple as you can kind of change the microbiome. I think so. Can, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wish it. Would. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know. I haven't. I, I don't think any any. I don't know if anyone's um, tried that. I think the probiotics um, trials also are at, are at early stages, right? They're mostly testing safety and and you know, is it toler- tolerable? And maybe it changes a few things in your microbiome. But um, in terms of long term health effects, I think we 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 have a lot to look at in terms of whether. Um, uh, probiotics are, are, are effective in that sense. I hope, I hope that they are, but <laughs> when we, when we talk about like overall mortality or things that have the, the biggest impact on health, cardiovascular issues, are, they're just way up there, right? They're like one mm-hmm. of the most, one of the yeah. most kind of concerning things to deal with, particularly for healthcare systems. Yeah. What 
connection, if any, are you seeing between the microbiome and people, you know, struggling with cardiovascular issues? Is there any connection there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there have been a lot of observational studies that show differences in the microbiome between people who have who have cardiovascular disease and people that don't. And there's there's a lot of um, mechanisms that we know of through which the microbiome could influence um, cardiovascular disease. I think one of the most um, famous examples would be this uh, that the uh, the microbiome produces this metabolite called trimethylamine and oxide or TMAO, which, um, you know, was, is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So there's definitely, um, mechanisms by which the microbiome, um, is probably influencing, um, risk of cardiovascular disease, but I think those processes probably take a long time. So it's not like, you know, happening in one day, this is something that will happen over a long period of time. And cardiovascular disease is also not something that, just you know, it develops in one day. It 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 takes a long time to to develop those kinds of chronic diseases. And I think that's probably across the board, isn't it? With a lot of these things, it's it's that that is sometimes the 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 good thing, but also the issue with it is that if people don't see a a, a symptom that's causing them pain instantly then the incentive for them to make significant changes is quite low, even though the long term outcome could be quite serious. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and especially like people who, who don't utilize healthcare, if you're not going to the doctor and checking your blood pressure and, you know, doing all your blood tests and you, you'll, you won't know if you have a problem until you have a very serious problem. And so right now with where we are, you know, you must have friends and family all the time who kind of know what you do. And they probably say to you like, so what's based on everything, like what advice would you kind of give me? Like what, you know, on the, all of the studies that you've done, the connection to whether it's menopause or cardiovascular or, or lung or all of those sort of things, what are, the, what are the consistencies across the trials where you think actually there are some things you could take away from this, you know, as far as looking after yourself? Yeah, I think that um, the, the, probably the number one thing is, is really diet. Um, just even, even if you're not changing your diet, but just like adding some, you know, fiber, high fiber foods to your diet, like, um, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and nuts and things like that. Like, and, and even, even if it's whole grains, like replacing refined grains with whole grains, I mean, we know that that's all beneficial for the gut microbiome and time and time again, we see that those foods are associated with having a healthier microbiome and a microbiome that's associated with, with health as opposed to disease. So it, I think that, that the biggest thing we can do is diet. There's obviously other lifestyle things that people have, have studied that, um, are related to your microbiome, um, antibiotics, smoking, you know, there's other, other things that obviously will impact your microbiome as well. But, um, but it, diet is, 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 is important. Mm -hmm. Do you see in any of the kind of trials that you do, are they taking into account those kind of lifestyle things such as exercise, uh, you know, other variables that have impact other than diet? Yeah, we and and others also have studied, um, you know, tried to study like all lots of different factors and what are the strongest predictors of the microbiome. Um, 
in addition to diet, there's, you know, certain medications have a, have an impact on the microbiome. Um, even just like, um, where you grew up, where you're from, <laughs> something that you can't really change, um, has an effect on your microbiome, whether you're male or female, your age. Um, so those are things that, that, that you're not going to be able to change, but, when you're saying medication having an impact on the microbiome, is that in a positive or, an, or a negative way? Like, what are some examples of that? Um, I'm not too familiar with, with which medications, but one example I think is metformin, which is a popular diabetes medication. I think it um, affects the microbiome. I don't know if it's for, for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, medications are definitely... There, I know there have been some big studies where they 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 ask the questionnaires about like a million things, like every drug you're taking, every food you eat, everything that you do, and they just look at put everything on the model and just like what comes out, like what's associated with the microbiome. And medications is a big one. It's really interesting. Yeah. What other areas that might kind of we've obviously spoken about menopause and, and cardiovascular. Are there any other things that you've been working on in that have, you know that are connected to other diseases or things in the body that might be interesting? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I've worked on also is um, chronic kidney disease. So I I recently um, led a study where we were looking at. Um, the association of the gut microbiome with kidney function and, and kidney damage, which are both um, part of, of having kidney disease. And it seems like the kidney is also really strongly associated, like kidney function is really strongly associated with the gut microbiome. And I, 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 I think probably a, a lot of studies don't maybe account for that, um, that, that kidney function um, is is associated with the gut microbiome, and we and I think it it probably goes both ways, like because um, you know when your kidney is malfunctioning, you you have a buildup of a, some you know bad stuff in your body that probably influences the microbiome, but at the same time I think the microbiome um, you know helps maintain your gut wall and you know your helps reduce inflammation and it can help um, produce beneficial metabolites that can help your kidney, and on the other hand if you know if you have some inflammatory bacteria that, you know, are causing inflammation, or if you have some uh, bacteria that are producing some um, harmful metabolites that could worsen your kidney health. So, so that's so interesting. Yeah. So the idea then that your kidney is sort of there to clean up, if you like, its mm -hmm. job is, yeah. to, is, 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 is to do that, that if you have let's say well the hypothetical thing is is then if you have say lots of bad bacteria or whatever's going on in the, the microbiome even that in itself could essentially put more stress it's not just simply the correlation but actually that could put more stress on the liver over time yeah yeah i think that the uh some of the metabolites that the microbiome produces that that come up a lot there they could be um, harmful for the kidney and also just harmful for other organ systems as well. We kind of see the same patterns come up with, with a lot of these chronic diseases. So we kind of are figuring out, you know, which, which, um, bacterial metabolites are, are not good and which of their metabolites are good for us. And when you say help us understand then metabolites, like yeah. what, 
So it's... We are, we're saying microbiome. Sorry. I'm conscious <laughs> of people listening right now, like what, what a metabolite is. Sure. So a uh, metabolite is something that the microbiome is producing from primarily from the food you eat. So they're metabolizing, let's say you, you, you eat some protein that's made up of amino acids, the microbiome breaks it down and produces some metabolites. Um, so that's what we mean by metabolites is the break, breakdown products of whatever the bacteria are eating. And, what, and, our, and then what happens with metabolites? What, what does our body like do? With so we them? might um, like absorb them into our blood from, from our colon so that, so that they the, so that the metabolites can get around and into in our different places in our body, and we can measure them in our blood. So that's kind of a related field to microbi- microbiome is metabolomics, which means measuring all of the metabolites in a sample. So whether it's in the blood or in the stool. So what's so interesting then is is you know you can kind of go into all of these like quite strong academic trials about what the correlation is and which microbes are calling, causing what. But actually, if you go all the way back to the beginning, it all connects to trying to eat a healthy diet with plenty of fiber in it to promote good bacteria and try to avoid things that promote bad bacteria in its simplest form, right? Yeah, I think so. Because I think what people want to hear is, is people at the cutting edge, we kind of want to know like, okay then, so what's the pill? And you're like, (laughs) "Uh, you just kind of need to eat lots of fiber and try and stay as healthy as possible and do some exercise. Yeah, it's definitely a struggle. It's not easy, but (laughs) that's uh, probably the best thing that you can do for your your microbiome at the moment anyway. And coming up in in the kind of next few years then you were just talking about what what one of the next trials one of the next studies would be do you have any like any kind of really wish list things that you can work on like obviously there are the practicalities of getting funding and stuff like that but do you have some things that you think oh I would love that I you know I'd love to go and work on that yeah I would love to do a really large study of um sex hormones and the gut microbiome, like a, a, a large study where we can really figure out, you know, what um, bacteria are associated with hormones and, and then also look at um, menopausal symptoms. I would really love to figure out um, if the microbiome um, can be helpful during menopause um, for symptoms as well as for um, future disease risk. Um, because I don't know how familiar you are with the controversy around estrogen and how it's, it's can be helpful, but it might also be harmful after menopause. So I would, I would love to see if, how, how the microbiome kind of works into that. So, so just on that note then for people that don't know too much about menopause, just kind of what you're saying is, is that when people go through menopause, often a solution post-menopause to help people is to give them hormones. Is that is that correct? Yes, to give to give estrogen basically. And um, there there were some some studies, a large clinical trial back in the '90s that um, gave estrogen to women who were postmenopausal, but they were kind of well after menopause, and um, and everybody thought that it would reduce risk of cardiovascular disease because all of these observational studies showed that, you know, that estrogen was beneficial for cardiovascular disease. And they actually found the opposite, that that taking estrogen was increasing risk of cardiovascular disease. So everybody kind of had a panic and um, 
that estrogen is bad. And, and since that time, there's been a lot more nuanced research um, trying to figure out the timing of when it's safe to give estrogen and, and when it's not safe. And the timing in relation to menopause is really probably the most important thing. So there's this idea that um, uh, during menopause and right after menopause, it's safe to take estrogen and, and even beneficial. But, you know, if you've, if you're past, if you're like 10 years past menopause, like, like you're, you're much older, it's probably not safe to take estrogen because your, your body is already not used to having estrogen anymore. You're so, you're so far from, from that point where you went through menopause. So, um, so that's, so, so I'm interested to see is like, is, is, is a microbiome, which potentially helps you retain as estrogen is that is that beneficial? So that's one of my my questions that I would love to answer. Because I'm assuming in some ways, like before we had modern medicine, there wasn't hormonal support after menopause naturally. Like there wasn't a system there in the first place. It was some of the idea that it not everyone might ne necessarily need it. Right. I mean, it's it's right now yeah hormone therapy is only only indicated for symptom control like helping you with your symptoms if a woman has hot flashes that kind of thing um it also helps with with um preventing bone loss but it's not like indicated for preventing cardiovascular disease at the moment <laughs> because of all the, the the controversy that that went on well, I think yeah. people are incredibly relieved, uh, Brandy, that there are people like you in the world who are actually taking the time to go and explore these topics and collect thousands of stool samples from people <laughs> to pick through them and process them. It's a them group because... effort. It's a group effort. There's a lot of, uh, I work with a lot of people, so it's, yeah, I just have to acknowledge that, but thank but you. <laughs> I, do I do think it's exciting, isn't it? That there are, you know, I think some people sometimes feel a bit despondent, this idea that the healthcare and the future of healthcare is simply just related to pharmaceutical medication or those sorts of things. But there are all these amazing trials going on out there really trying to find the best outcomes for people based on the data. And I think that in itself is really exciting. Thank you. I, I also think it's exciting. I, I, I love what I do. Um, I, I'm happy to be part of, of whatever discoveries we can make. <laughs> well, let's keep in the loop then. Whenever these trials are coming out, we'd love to hear more about them. And if we can share articles, if we can share blogs on them, then we, we'd absolutely love to do it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you.